Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg. News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. On the show today, we find out if nuclear power could be the answer to our sustainable future, and writer Moncon McGon gives us a glimpse into his green life. Of course, we'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. And now it's time to head down to earth, beginning with our weekly news roundup. Yes, it's our regular feature, The Weekly Planet, with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week, Craig is helping me talk about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. Hi, Craig. Hi, Carla. Hi. The big news this week has obviously been dominated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And you and I have a few former colleagues, actually, that we know based in the Ukraine that are preparing to defend their cities, both of whom worked for environmental NGOs in the past or currently. Uh, What are you hearing from them regarding the environmental impacts that they're concerned about in addition to the humanitarian crisis? Yeah, it's been a dreadful few days, hasn't it, Cara? And no one can watch the news reports from the Ukraine and not just feel a huge outpouring of empathy for the Ukrainian people. And, uh, you know, the Facebook feeds that you and I are watching from our friends and colleagues in Ukraine, you know, you see firsthand, you know, the impact that this appalling war is having on the population there. What is very interesting is understandably what's sort of not making the wider news at the moment, and it's quite understanding that uh, that that's the case. But, you know, our, our colleagues are pointing out that actually the environment is really suffering through this war as well. And that then in turn is really impacting people and impacting uh, communities in the long term. So one of our uh, former colleagues, Carla, was pointing out about how where power stations have been targeted and other infrastructures being targeted, that is then causing a legacy of extreme toxic pollution that is both hitting uh, local people right now, health impacts on them now. You know, I saw a Facebook post from one of our colleagues that was showing you know, how they were monitoring uh, air pollution and really severe air, air pollution in around where people live. Uh, because of that bombing but also just pointing out you know even if even if and I wish we could I wish we could have some kind of diplomatic magic wand and suddenly stop all this overnight even if we could do that the problem is is then the legacy of that extreme toxic pollution that is uh, uh, being caused because of this uh, bombardment uh, lasts for decades that's a that's the real concern and this does happen in war it happens all the time you know the environment obviously is also one of the, the one of the key casualties of war alongside people but then when the environment gets uh, destroyed and polluted uh, obviously that affects communities for much longer as well yeah i mean there's obviously the the general environmental issues like air pollution and of course the more specific environmental issues that chernobyl nuclear power station is there and still very much contaminated but i think the link between fossil fuels and this conflict is really stark because it's helping to fund the Russian invasion. And there's been yeah. quite a lot of debate on that, on, on whether either Putin or the EU themselves will try and kind of turn off the tap, so to speak, on the gas pipelines between Russia and the EU. So let's have a listen to Ireland's energy minister, Eamon Ryan, in Brussels this week talking about that. The best way to take on Vladimir Putin is to stop buying imported oil, gas and coal from the European, from the USSR, from, from, the Soviet, from Russia. Uh, and that's what we want to work collectively and to cancel today into the medium term. That's the best response to the threat that Russia's present. Craig, if you can get past that little wobble there, Minister Ryan went on to point out that while the U.S. is sending 350 million euros of arms to help Ukraine, in Europe we're actually spending 350 million euros every single day buying energy from Russia, which they then invest in dropping arms on Ukraine. So it seems so obvious to me that the thing to do is to go to any lengths right now to get off that dependency on Russian fossil fuel right away. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, I have some sympathy for your minister, Kawa, actually getting that wobble there and, and, and finding ourselves back thinking as if it's the 1980s and the time of the USSR, because 
you know, that's how it's felt at times this last week. Um, and uh, the thing that we've got to do now is recognise that we've got to get our energy in a way that's different from how we did in the 1980s. You know, I'm always struck that you, you do have some people say, well, we can't, we shouldn't be buying oil and gas from Russia. Of course we shouldn't. Of course we should try and stop buying oil and gas from Russia immediately. And some people will say then, uh, that means we've got to exploit our own uh, oil and gas supplies uh, in the rest of Europe, you know, through fracking or for pumping even more from the North Sea or whatever. But I would say, surely it's really clear we've been doing that for 50, 60 years and uh, exploiting you know, our own oil and gas supplies here in Western Europe. And that hasn't got us off the fossil fuel hook. We're still pumping all that oil and gas from Russia. And the thing about fossil fuels is uh, once you're addicted to them, you just kind of want more and more and more. What we've got to do is, is get off that hook. We've got to move, take this situation now and move faster than ever in investing in energy efficiency and properly insulating our houses across Western Europe, because many of them, particularly in the UK and Ireland, actually, are in an appalling state when it comes to insulation. And that means we're wasting huge amounts of energy. And that means we're buying more, even more oil and gas from Vladimir Putin than uh, we uh, need to, let alone should be buying. So I think it, this really, we need to take this off this moment now to absolutely cut, get ourselves off the fossil fuel hook. And I find it amazing, actually, that this hasn't been uh, even higher in the debate around sanctions. You know, governments talking tough about the sanctions that they are putting in place. But, but I think, you know, until actually the Western world says to Vladimir Putin, we're going to stop buying your, buying your oil and gas, um, I don't think he's going to listen very much. Yeah, I've been following a lot of climate economists like Erno Wagner on Twitter, and they, you know, they're talking about that kind of more orderly transition that you're referring to, a kind of a fast investment in insulation and renewables. But they're also talking about this idea of ripping the plaster off quickly, which is just ration our own gas supplies intensely now in kind of a COVID level restriction on gas uh, to to really push this and and cut off the investment to to Russia. And I'm I'm personally very much in favor of that. But I think that the yeah. next biggest story uh, that that hit the news, of, of course, well after the Ukraine conflict is is the one about the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that came out this week, looking specifically at how we adapt to climate, the climate change we've already locked in. And the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said that he'd seen many scientific reports in his time, but nothing like this and called it a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. Would you say that? That's an accurate assessment of the latest IPCC report, Craig. Yes, it absolutely is, Carla. I mean, it's, again, it's extraordinary. This would have been probably the biggest news story this week. Uh, and I don't just mean amongst environmental people, but it would have been the biggest news story this week had it not been for that, uh, what's happening in Ukraine. Um, it is a shocking report, uh, as if, you know, we couldn't have even had uh, enough shocking reports already about climate change. But this one has surprised even people like you and I that have been following this for years. I mean, it says that more than 40% of the world's population, that's uh, roughly between 3.3 billion and 3.6 billion people, are already living in places and situations that are highly vulnerable to climate change. And that some are already experiencing the effects of climate change. They vary by region and different geographies, but you know, people are already seeing this. It also sort of says, and references for the first time, that historical and ongoing patterns of inequity, such as colonialism, uh, have contributed to the vulnerability that many regions face on climate change. And also, very alarmingly, it sort of says that humanity will soon hit hard limits uh, to its ability to adapt if temperatures continue to rise. And the point it makes is that, you know, communities like coastal communities can temporarily buffer themselves from extreme storms, say by restoring coral reefs and mangroves and wetlands. But as rising seas continue to rise, eventually it will overwhelm those efforts, resulting in more coastal erosion and flooding and, and loss of life and freshwater resources and so on. So um, it, there's lots in this that is really concerning. I mean, one other point that I think is interesting about this report is it also talks about the, the multiple health impacts of climate change. Uh, many of them we would understand, you know, uh, heat stress and so on. Uh, but actually, for the first time, this report also talks about the kind of cumulative impacts on uh, mental health for uh, hundreds of millions of people because of the trauma of living through extreme weather events and loss of livelihood culture and so on and flooding and i think yeah you know it's significant that it's uh, noted that for the first time I'm in two minds about how shocking this report is, because I think in general, the IPCC reports are collating 
research that's already been done. That's the role of the IPCC report. So if you've been following the research, then you already know a lot of this was projected to happen and and is happening. However, if you're coming to this story kind of late in the game, like some of the women in my gym this week who pulled me aside and said, oh, my God, this new IPCC report is shocking, uh, then maybe maybe it really is shocking, as you say. So, so it's a, a mixed bag there. But I do think the one really interesting thing about this report is it's the first time the IPCC has focused really on on adaptation, which to me was almost a, an acknowledgement of defeat, that we have failed to address this crisis. And therefore, we now have to try and adapt as best we can to this this inevitable climate change that we're seeing. Did you have the same kind of feelings? Yes, I mean, it sort of it, it simultaneously talks about the need how we've got to take adaptation much more seriously because we've been so bad at really trying to do the mitigation job and slow climate change, while also making that point that adaptation can only go so far. So really, it just kind of emphasises how important it is for us to, to guess what? Same story again, get off the fossil fuel hook. And it particularly warns about the, the, the concern about how we get into a self-perpetuating cycle around climate change, how you know you get a bit more warming uh, and that say leads to the thawing of the Arctic permafrost uh, and that releases more methane, which then uh, fuels more warming again. So it's interesting to put these two stories together, Cara. You know, you and I have heard time and again that we need to get on a war footing to tackle climate change. Uh, and that's been said time and again, because we just haven't treated it historically with the seriousness it deserves. And so when you put these two things together, you were saying before about cutting off the, the uh, oil and gas supplies and stop buying them from uh, Russia. You know, we are moving into spring now. I think we if we were taking these two issues really seriously, what Western European governments would be doing right now is uh, saying that we're going to stop buying oil and gas from Russia uh, and take the months of the spring and summer to unleash a, a huge, really warlike energy efficiency program and invest in renewables far and in deployment faster than ever. And then at least we'll be in a better situation come next winter. And a lot could be deployed very quickly if we move fast. And we'll be tackling these two huge issues at the same time. It's a real shame that we're not hearing enough of a discussion about that at the yeah, moment yeah. Uh, in sort of among, amongst international politicians and discussions. Yeah, I, I did like in the IPCC report that there was a, an, a, an emphasis on restoring nature. And one of the scientists in the press conference said, for nature to save us, we have to save nature. And that brings me to our last story as everyone started taking off their masks and resume resuming the social undistancing this week, which has been great. Uh, there have been three scientific assessments that have come out, all reported in the journal nature that all link the COVID outbreak back to either animals and or wet markets in China that sell live animals. So does this mean, Craig, that we can finally dispel all the rumors that COVID was intentionally released out of a lab or that we have a definitive answer on where the COVID virus came from? Um, I, uh, you know what scientists are like, Carl? I don't think they will say 100% definitive quite yet, um, but it's clearer than ever, let's put it that way, that the evidence is pointing to, to the, uh, the suggestion that COVID was uh, yet another. So here's the thing, it's not really a surprise, yet another spillover event. Uh, that means a spillover from wildlife populations into human populations. Of course, that wouldn't be surprising because that's exactly what caused HIV AIDS. Uh, SARS, Ebola, Nipovirus. It's exactly what's being predicted for decades now, that if we keep fragmenting and eroding wildlife habitat, if we keep moving into wildlife habitats, and then in particular, if we trade in animal parts and live animals, then we're going to see more of these spillover events causing pandemics in human populations. And so, um, as you say, three studies this week all published suggesting very much that that was the cause of it. And again, linking it back to this uh, seafood market that was in Wuhan and so on, uh, it, it seems really clear now. I mean, as you say, you, you can never say it's definitive, but I think it's very clear enough now that that's it's highly likely that that was the cause of COVID. And the point is here, if we want to avoid uh, future pandemics or at least reduce the risk of future pandemics that are uh, having the huge negative impact that COVID has had, then we've got to actually start protecting wildlife habitats around the world. It would probably make sense also to stop trading in live animal in, in, in animal parts and live animals and in, in markets and so on. Uh, and actually, we've just got to restore that relationship between humans and nature. And guess what? That will be good for human health, too.
Yeah, so depending on whether you're a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of person, you could look at this as a, a good news story and that it's clear that we could stop another pandemic by protecting nature. And I'm not sure how easy it would be for us to, to get China to ban these live animal markets. Or if you're more of a pessimist, it could mean we can expect, expect more of these to come as we, as we continue to you know, destroy nature and move into natural environments. So where do you stand on that, Craig? Well, you know, Carl, I like to try and be an optimist, but um, the the real and of course we should take that message. We should take that message from this and and uh, redouble our efforts to protect nature. But I'll give you this thought, uh, this sobering thought. Uh, since January 2020, when of course the virus really started to emerge and spread, actually we've done nothing really to reduce the loss of nature globally. In fact, in many respects, it's kind of sped up which means that as of today, the emergence of the next pandemic is even more likely than it was back in January 2020 when COVID emerged. So uh, sadly, we're not moving in the right direction on this issue, same as many others. So I know that's kind of a depressing round of stories this week, Kawa. Um, it's a real shame, but, um, you know, actually we've got to acknowledge the significance and underlying root causes a lot of these problems uh, if we're going to tackle them. Yeah, well, I still have one little dose of hope or hopium, as my friend John Gibbons likes to say, because I think people are really talking and listening to these kind of environmental news stories a lot more. So thanks for bringing some yes. of them to our attention this week. Craig. That's absolutely true. Thanks, Carla. Thanks, Speak Craig. next week. After the break, we'll find out if nuclear power is the solution to our sustainable future. Down to Earth with Amundi. An asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. You're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk, and my guests today are cringing at that song written by the Nuclear for Climate Youth Flash Mob that performed in Glasgow during the last UN climate conference, COP26. It demonstrates how public interest in nuclear power is making a bit of a comeback, and it's also part of the decarbonization plans of countries like the United States and France and also China. So should we here in Ireland be considering nuclear power as part of our energy plans? Well, here to discuss this, I'm joined by Sarah Cullen, energy and energy engineer and co-founder of the 18 for Zero Initiative, and Saiv O'Neill, assistant professor at DCU School of Law and Government, and also a candidate in the current TCD Shannon by-election. Hi, guys. Welcome to the studio. Sarah, 18 for Zero, it's a voluntary group that says it's concerned about the credibility of current proposals to achieve net zero emissions in Ireland by 2050. And you want all forms of electricity production to be considered to do this, including the removal of the ban on nuclear power in Ireland. So why do you feel that's necessary? Well, I don't think that it's actually controversial to um, to want to look into all different forms of electricity generation. If anything, that's just due diligence that the government should be doing. If we're going to be coming up with energy policy, you need to understand what your options are. So as a baseline, we should be doing that at the very minimum. That being said, I actually think nuclear is a good option, not just an option, because it has the lowest carbon emissions of any major form of electricity generation, um, as found by the UNECE last year. And it um, was and it's the kind of cornerstone of most other countries' plans that have plans to get to net zero in their electricity system. Ireland actually doesn't have a plan to get to net zero by 2050 at the moment. There are some kind of proposals by groups out there, but the government hasn't come up with their plan. Now's a really good time to check into all of our options. And I feel like most Irish people would support that, especially given that this one is a particularly clean an affordable way of producing electricity, as you see in other European countries looking into building it. Saiv, you've heard Sarah's arguments and you've seen this kind of growing movement in, in attention to nuclear power once again. What do you think? Do you think we should be considering this as part of our plans for 2050? Well, my position on nuclear is um, agnostic. I'm not against it and I'm not in favour of it. Um, so my issue with nuclear power in the Irish electricity system is a question of feasibility and scalability. Um, now, we already have plans to get to 80% renewables uh, by 2030. 
And interestingly, Germany, uh, in the context of the Ukraine crisis and the kind of exposure, the particular exposure they have to um, Russian gas and all of that, have now declared that they're going to try to get to 100% renewables by 2035, which is incredibly ambitious because that's a country that's actually taking nuclear out of its energy system. So I think, you know, the, 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 the facts on the ground are changing day by day. And it's very, very interesting to see how um, we can incorporate long-term new and large-scale technologies into a crisis that's extremely urgent in terms of what we have to do today. So the United Nations has told us that in order to have any chance of staying below 1.5 degrees, we need to reduce emissions from fossil fuel, um, which is obviously the cornerstone of electricity generation, um, by 50%. Uh, by 2030. And uh, in the case of developed countries, the idea is that we should be aiming to get to net zero emissions completely well before 2050, ideally by 2040. So the question is, how could you possibly begin to incorporate nuclear energy into your power system um, when it takes somewhere between 15 and 25 years to get electricity generation from nuclear up and running? So you can build it into your models, but you can't actually get it online in time for it to make a serious dent into our greenhouse gas emissions. So that's where I'm coming from on this. I'm not necessarily arguing that nuclear should come out of the energy system where it exists. And I think Germany, you know, is facing a very serious energy crunch. And there's no doubt about it that its accelerated closure of its nuclear plants is going to present it with particular dilemmas. And of course, that has led to an increase in coal generation, which is not something that I think is good. Um, So I'm not arguing for nuclear to come out of the energy system. I just think that, you know, its current contribution to global energy supply is extremely small and that scaling it up in time for it to have a major impact on our uh, energy and climate crisis is, is not realistic and that we need to focus our attention on energy efficiency measures, which is reducing energy demand. Uh, using demand-side management and a range of other storage techniques, batteries, pump storage and things like that to balance the um, grid when the wind isn't blowing. Uh, There's no doubt about it, and Sarah will make this point better than me, that, you know, getting to 80% renewables is achievable. Beyond that, the marginal costs do increase quite dramatically, and that's the case for nuclear generation. But I still don't see how it can be brought online in time for it to make a difference. Um, I'd just like to correct a few things that I've said there. So um, Germany doesn't have a plan to get 100% renewables by 2035. That was an aspiration that was listed. One of many options, including um, the Minister for Their Economy, listed that they're looking into stopping the phase out of their nuclear power plants. They still have nuclear power. Nuclear power is 20% of Europe's electricity in total, and it's over 50% of clean electricity. I did like a point that I've made, and I think she makes it quite well, that um, she's agnostic on nuclear power. And I know a lot of people share this view and that what they're concerned about is the scalability and how quickly we can build it. 1830 has done technical reports on this. So we actually have done studies on this, but um, that show that we are capable of delivering nuclear power under the IAEA milestones approach, which we would have to follow if we're developing nuclear power. We would develop with uh, from the point of the government saying we'd like to study it to getting electricity from a plant would be between 10 and 15 years, possibly shorter because the types of plants we're looking for are simpler for licensing. Um, so I think, but these studies that we sh- that we have that show we can do it in about ten years, ten to fifteen years, um, they should really be a jumping off point for the government, and the government should be including, like, should be doing their own study and including it in their own models. So then people who are a bit agnostic about it and aren't really sure will have firm data to go on, and I think that's what most people want. They want a really good informed conversation. We need good government studies on this. Well, I may not be as agnostic as Sive on this one because I was doing some research in preparation for the show and. And, and found that the cost of nuclear energy is three times higher than renewable energies. And I think the thing that disturbed me the most, Saib, you mentioned the, the conflict in Ukraine, but there was a 2018 research out of the University of Sussex that said that if you look at nuclear reactors, they are always the only effective means of providing the crucial materials needed for nuclear weapons. So there's a link between nuclear power and that supply chain for nuclear weapons. So given how close we are right now to nuclear warfare, essentially, because of the conflict in the Ukraine, don't you think it's maybe irresponsible for Ireland to be considering taking any part in this sector? That's a dangerous myth. 
there is no overlap between the countries that have nuclear weapons and uh, nuclear power. When you look at them, there's no correlation between them. Some of them do, some of them don't. Way more countries have nuclear power than have nuclear weapons. And those waste streams and the, the fuel streams are all managed by the IAEA, which is designed and is in place are to you, stop are that Are you from disputing happening. this study that says that if you look at every country that is trying to advance nuclear energy, they also have some ties to trying to create nuclear weapons? Estonia, Czech Republic, Poland... I I mean, uh, uh, Ghana, Kenya, yeah. like these, that that's just not true. Okay. And I am disputing that story. And what about the fact that we would actually need that waste material from nuclear power plants to create nuclear weapons in general? True or false? Um, nuclear waste from nuclear power plants is not used to make nuclear weapons. It is managed by the IAEA. Every gram of nuclear waste in the world is monitored by the International Atomic Energy Agency. It wouldn't be possible for us to make nuclear weapons with it. That is a myth. So that study, you think that study is false? I I think it's important to distinguish between the sort of technical aspects of nuclear power and the institutions that are set up to uh, ensure nuclear safety and the sort of economics, the supply chains, the connections, the kind of uh, treadmill of production and consumption that the uh, industry is involved in. Um, I mean, I share your concern about proliferation. Um, You know, the causal connection between power generation and nuclear weapons is difficult to show. But that doesn't mean to say that it isn't something we should be concerned about because of the risks involved. I mean, one of the uh, profound arguments, I suppose, against nuclear power is that it's uh, while the, the risks of any catastrophic accident or of proliferation and so on or n- nuclear accident in, in the context of war, as we have ongoing now in the Ukraine, might be terribly small. The impacts could be catastrophic. So the question is, are we prepared to take those risks when we know we can generate clean, affordable and, um, you know, zero carbon energy from other sources? Uh, Mark Jacobson, who has led research in the area of renewables over the last couple of decades, is about to come out with a new book where he's looking at how as a, 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 a global energy system can shift towards 100 percent renewable energies, which is an extremely ambitious Uh, undertaking, as you can imagine, even from a research point of view. And interestingly, even though the book isn't published, he makes it quite clear in his table of contents that there's no role for nuclear, that it can all be done without nuclear. And the main reasons he excludes nuclear from his analysis is on the grounds of cost, the uh, lack of uh, sort of supply of uranium-235, and thirdly, proliferation. So I think those fears and those connections are there. And um, I don't know that we need to give sucker to the weapons industry by supporting nuclear power. It it, it has been managed, of course, quite well. But how can we ensure that that's going to remain the case? We can see that we have rogue states operating around the world who pay little heed to international law and who are prepared to actually march and take over even the Chernobyl power station. And there's some worrying evidence that the movement of troops, the Russian troops around Chernobyl, has led to an increase in radioactive uh, dust uh, as a result of the soil disturbance. So the reality is that you're, t- you're dealing with a potential pollutant that has a half-life of up to tens and hundreds of thousands of years, depending on, on what it is. So the risks that we uh, take are, are, are tremendous. They're absolutely enormous. And we're taking those risks on behalf of future generations. If we could uh, guarantee that we could store waste safely and store the um, the potential con- contamination that might be involved for hundreds of thousands of years, I'd be all for it. But it's an, it's a huge undertaking, and I'm not sure that any engineer can stand over that. Sarah, um, as an engineer, I can stand over that. Um, so I'd like to just say. Um, While one individual might be proposing that we can get to 100% renewable energy and that that they feel from an ideological point of view that we don't need nuclear power... The International Sorry, Mark Jackson is an engineer. He's yeah. not an idealist. The International Energy Agency disagrees. The UN ECE disagrees. The IPCC disagrees. When you look at climate science, it is clear the, U- uh, the UN Economic Mission for Europe said that climate objectives will not be reached without uh, nuclear power. And most of these organization, organizations are calling for a significant increase in the amount of nuclear power so, from a cost perspective. So we're talking about Ireland right now, and that's what 18 for Zero is campaigning mm. for. I, I know you dispute the level of risk 
risk. But I mean, the, the cost difference, three times more expensive than solar and wind is indisputable. And there is no, it is disputable. Evidence. That isn't true. Um, electricity in France, 70 percent of it comes from nuclear power. Their electricity is cheaper than ours. Yeah, because their plants are already built. But if you look at Hinkley Point C or anything, I mean, the cost overruns have been tremendous. So the levelized cost. Based so the on levelized cost data, of electricity, just to explain to people what that is, is when you add up all the costs of running and operating a power plant, uh, any type of power plant, and you divide it by the amount of electricity that comes out of it. This is not an engineering term. This is a political term. It, that doesn't actually correlate with the cost of electricity in a country. The system's costs from renewables, as I've pointed out earlier, grow exponentially the more renewables you have in a system. Um, so they can do, like double the cost of electricity just from transmission and uh, jet backup generation, which you need when you have a lot of renewables. Systems that include nuclear are actually cheaper. 1840 has done a study into Ireland and we, the, our name, 1840, came, came from our findings that if we incorporate 18% nuclear power into our energy mix, we can decarbonize our electricity system fastest and for lower cost than if, than if it was technically feasible to get to 100% renewables by 2050, which it's not clear that it is. If it was technically feasible, I'd welcome it. I think it's absolutely fantastic, we, but we can't rule seen... out good options for kind of airy reasons. We've seen peer-reviewed research from Green Plan Ireland by Professor David Conley that says that we could become fully fossil fuel-free in our renewable energy systems and create 100,000 new jobs in the country. So, Sive, I'm curious what your what your arguments are and what Sarah is saying and also the difference in em- local employment. I mean, nuclear power plants don't tend to employ that many people, whereas we've seen renewables do. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my my. my point is really that there's a difference between what's technically feasible and what's politically feasible. Um, So it might be technically feasible to roll out nuclear power in Ireland by 2035 or 2040, but it takes up to two years just to get permission to do surveys for an offshore wind farm. Which is why we need to talk um, about it now. Yeah, I know. But if you're going to invest political capital and institutional effort, state resources, public finance and mobilise public opinion... Where should you put your energy? Where should you put your effort? And I think it's undoubtedly obvious that we need to put our effort into at least getting to the 80% by 2030 as a priority. And that just doesn't leave much room in the political system to be investing in, you know, nuclear energy for Ireland. I, I don't see we it as a runner. We should be putting our effort into finding the most runner. affordable, no... cleanest mix of electricity and we're doing a disservice and to Irish onshore, people by And offshore options. wind in Ireland are the clear winners in that. So and they have it have been proven over and over again. I can't be 100% wind. I'm ca- I'm curious, Sarah, the 18 for zero has called for, I think, a citizens assembly on this issue. Is that right? Well, we haven't called for it. I mean, we've suggested that that might be a good idea. Um, we Nuclear power was um, really markedly left out of the citizens assembly on climate change. It wasn't addressed, um, whereas most other countries that are really serious about climate action are seriously looking into nuclear power and are expanding their or developing new nuclear power programs like we're seeing across yeah. a lot of Europe. Um, so we think that that is one good option, although I will say since we came out with that report and that suggestion, uh, air grid, or so in the most recent climate action plan and one of the appendices it was buried that um, Airgrid are doing are coming up with pathways to net zero and in 2024 the government will choose a roadmap. I think we need a government study before then. So when the government is choosing a roadmap, we can have a good informed decision that um, if nuclear um, comes out favorably in the pathways, they will understand what our limitations are, um, you know, what our capabilities are for developing nuclear and that can inform the roadmap. So we need good, informed policy, which we're not currently getting. Saib, I mean, one of the reasons we, we don't talk about nuclear in Ireland is because it's legally been banned. And, and I have sympathy with, you know, maybe we should open this discussion. I know even Minister Eamon Ryan has said we should we should have a conversation about this. But at the same time, we've banned fracking in Ireland re- more recently. And I would hate to think that we decide to reopen the conversation about fracking. So what do you think? I mean, should we just have the conversation in the doll or in a citizens assembly or something to kind of draw a line in this issue? Well, I, I think what Sarah's proposing there in terms of uh, having a study on the feasibility is welcome. I, I just don't see any reason not to do that. And I think Airgrade is the best body to undertake that. Um, however, it isn't just a technical question. There are profound political decisions involved. And I think that the Oireachtas and the government is entitled to make a, to take a view long term about um, the direction that Irish energy policy should take. 
So I again, like if it comes to pass that it's wise and prudent to change the law to uh, allow nuclear, so be it. But I don't think that that's the first thing that needs to be done. Um, and I certainly think that, you know, as part of any analysis, we need to look at the whole costs, including, incidentally, the um, the costs of uranium mining. So one of the, the real concerns about scaling up nuclear at a global level is the uh, depletion of uranium resources. And while fast breeder reactors, which is a kind of generation three, I think, uh, type nuclear reactor for uh, can use a different type of uranium, there is a serious environmental cost and there are limits to the availability of this resource. This is and, a really no, interesting it, Sorry, this is, let me finish, please. Um, so there are limits. There are environmental limits and there are environmental costs to every energy choice and every pathway that we take. And we must take the pathway that has the least ecological impact. We are in the middle of a climate and biodiversity crisis. And now is not the time to be experimenting with technologies that could only add to that. We have to be taking a, a kind of a least cost approach and uh, the least environmental impact approach and working with nature to restore our ecosystems. Now, while that seems like a totally separate question to nuclear, it's, I suppose it's, it's a, just a different uh, outlook on the situation. And I, I think that it's one that we absolutely need to embrace in the context of meeting all of our energy needs. Well, I think what we can all agree on is this is a conversation that needs to be had in the public domain. And hopefully this is the start of that conversation. My thanks to Sarah Cullen and Sive O'Neill for their expertise in this hotly debated topic. Up next, Moncon will tell me about his green life. Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. And today, writer and documentary maker Monkan McGowan joins me. Monkan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Karen. Nice to be here. Nice to have you, because I feel really lucky that we got you for Shocked in a Gaelga, which is Irish Language Week for our international listeners. And that's about all the Irish that I have. But you've actually published a number of books on on the topic of the Irish language and nature, one of those being 32 words for a field. And another, another one is tree dogs, banshee fingers and other Irish words for nature. So what is it about the Irish language that you feel connects directly to nature? Well, I mean, you can say this about all old languages. So Irish is one of these old languages that has been spoken and silent for two or 3,000 years. And any of those languages that come from the pre-modern time, from the time where humans weren't totally thinking about using the earth in an exploitative way, have a different mindset. They have a mindset that, that sort of is based upon the idea of absolutely trying to live in harmony with nature, of living sustainably, because that was all they had. You know, they had to be in this relationship with nature. So you get these gorgeous ideas of, um, so as even like the word, the name of that book, 32 Words for Fields, it just explores the insights the Irish language gives into fields. It's like there's one or two chapters in it. And it makes it seem like the word for a field in Irish, well, one of the main words is girt. And girt really describes, it's the, a piece of land that is plowable by two oxen within one, between dawn and dusk. So it immediately sort of quantifies a piece of land um, by how humans would relate to it. And like there's so many others, like Boiler would be a night field for cattle, or no, Boiler would be a field for cattle to wait in before they get milked. Tour is a night field, Rain is an upland field, Macher is an open field, Monair and closed fields. There's just, they were observing nature to such a degree just because our ancestors depended on it for everything in their lives. One of the things I read about your book is that you said there's there's five words to describe the, the stages of, of dawn, which makes you look at sunrises in a different way. So do you think that that if we were more connected to the Irish language, that that might somehow connect us more to nature. Yeah, I mean, I do think if we if we connected to any of these old languages, but it's most relevant in Ireland to be connected to the Irish language. I just say my granny like taught me Irish and she taught me those different words for rising the sun. So I really feel that I see sunrise potentially differently from an English speaker. Because like I will see Irene Grain and Bonin Grain and Fáinne Gallen Lay and all these different steps of sunrise and I think it does make us appreciate nature more. And particularly like the, the, the second book I brought out was like a children's book, as you said, Tree Dogs and Banshee Fingers. And what, that, what I realized for that was that the way that Irish looks at nat the natural world is actually the way like a curious child would. So the word for a bat in Irish is like skihan lahar, leather wings. 
Like uh, just, you know, because and a kid might see it, see it as a bat and think, yeah, it's sort of leathery and it's flying. Or the word for an E for a, for a stoat is asog. And asog comes from the word askan, which is an eel. Because again, they would have seen this slithery thing and, uh, and, and called it that. Or like a corn bunting, the bird that is unfortunately very rare now in Ireland. Was um was a gallo bucher and a gallo bucher is like a little golden shiny thing among the cowpats. So I, like you know rather we sort of use Latin and Greek terms now for our languages in English for our nature words and Irish it makes you actually go deeper and understands the world around you. I love that reference to to seeing the world like a child because I do think I you know having watched my child grow up to the age of eleven now you know the connection to nature that children have is far deeper than we as adults we kind of lose that connection but from what I've read you actually have maintained that connection with a pretty green life at your home in Westmeath so just how green is your domestic life? (laughs) So I had spent about a decade living in other countries living in India and South America and um, and Africa maybe in my 20s and early 30s and what I realized there was that most people I met were still living in harmony with the land And I decided I came back to Ireland disillusioned with sort of the modern world. And I was wondering, would I be able to do the same? So in the year 1997, I bought 10 acres down here in Westmead. And I built the first little house I built was a straw bale house, just because all around me, you know, in Africa, people were building out of mud in Bolivia. They were building out of reeds in Nepal. It was out of stone. So I thought I'd do the same. I'd build an ecological house that could then rot naturally into the ground when I didn't need it. So I lived in that, I lived in the strawberry house for about five years, but then I built a slightly bigger house, still very small on the land, and I planted trees. I planted about eight, 9,000 oak trees and had another 10,000 um, Scots pine, both the native trees of Ireland. And then I, sort of, then I planted an orchard, about 50 apple trees and plum trees. And then over the years, I've got myself bees and I've got myself hens, and sometimes I have pigs. I have no pigs at the moment. And during that, I always had a bit of a vegetable garden and a polytunnel. But during COVID, like everyone, it just expanded. I just got out in the garden and kept on growing more and more beds for Jerusalem artichokes and leeks and kale and broccoli and potatoes. I have like far too much food at the moment. You, you built the first straw bale house in Ireland, I read, back in 1997. So is it it's still standing or has it rotted to the ground now? It's, 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 no, it's, well, it, I sort of took it down after six years. I, I, I had no idea of how to build at the time. I would just get books from the library, you know, how to do electricity, how to do plumbing, how to do foundations. But the book, the good book on foundations was out of, out of the library when I, I read it. So I put very thin foundations, like basically three inches, a three inch raft of concrete around the edge. And uh, I put the straw bales on that. And so there was a bit of subsidence. So after about five or six years, there was a, a, a crack in one of the walls. But also, like, I didn't have planning permission for that house. So I was telling Westmead County Council, look, I'm going to build a proper house, but this is just an example for you. So I took it down after six years. And then they gave me permission for a straw bale house after that. And, and yeah, <laughs> they're, like, they're I, more I common that. now, aren't they? There's a few of them around the country, yeah? Exactly, yeah. And I mean, I only learned it because at the time I had been living in Canada and in parts of Seattle where they were building them there. Yeah, and they hold up to the rain and everything. They do, just because of the wonder, the miracle of lime. So I just mixed up some lime, white lime and uh, sand and used that as a plaster. And lime is just so much better than cement. It, it, absorbs, it absorbs water when it rains, but then the minute the rain stops, it wicks it all off. It throws it all off again. So the bales after six years were perfectly dry and I was able to sell them back to a farmer. They were in perfect condition. Wow. So you mentioned that you've traveled around the world and I think for most of your career you've been known or I knew you as that travel guy having a slot on this station about travel and making several documentaries and television programs about world travel and adventure holidays. And now I've heard that you, you don't fly at all. So how and when did all of that change? So I, for all of us, I think 2019 was a big wake up call. We've forgotten it since COVID, but 2019 was almost the year of, of um, XR, of Extinction Rebellion, but also the year when the UN started coming out with those really frightening statistics, you know, that there was no, there were very few insects left and that there was only a certain amount of harvest left in the fertility of the ground. And that just, you know, they, we had a fuller idea of just what climate change um, would impact how it would impact the world and at the time I was as you said still a travel journalist with you know slots on news talk and in tv3 and an rt and still writing in the irish times and I thought like I've spent 15 years basically encouraging people to fly around the world and I could possibly look back at that point and thought I hadn't really realized the damage it was doing but from 2019 was very clear so I thought am I going to continue for another 10 years promoting travel in radio and television newspapers with the knowledge that every flight I was encouraging was going to do damage. I just felt I couldn't do that. 
So I decided, I announced just in the beginning of 2020 that I wasn't going to fly for travel journalism or for holidays anymore. But I would, I might take occasional travel for other work, for my writing and, and my theatre stuff. Um, but I thought at the time I was sort of, ex- I mean, I, I, you, I mourned the loss of it, but I was excited about all the opportunities of taking trains, like seeing could I get up to Iceland by train and seeing could I get down even as far as the Canary Islands by boat and train. But um, then COVID happened and none of us went anywhere for two years. So you haven't tried the slow travel yet to see if it really works out. I have. Yeah, but not just as much as I wanted. I have I just and in, in January 2020, I went down to Seville because I think for the last maybe 25 years, I've gone somewhere warm in winter. And I thought, how am I going to manage a winter without any bit of warmth? So I just took the train down to Seville, down almost at the border of Morocco, where it was beautifully warm. And I realized, OK, this isn't so bad. I mean, I did realize I had a great holiday, but then having to come back three days on the train on the way back it was tricky. Yeah. And then about two weeks ago, I just came back from a train holiday around Brittany, again, seeking light and just seeking an, an escape from the island. And it was brilliant. It was, it was warm. It was airy. It was bright. It felt like a relief from the darkness of Iron Irish winter. Yeah, having tra- started to do the slow travel thing myself, I find that it's the return journey that, that's harder, actually, than, than going when you're actually excited. But I do think it's easier for people like you and I who have seen the world already to suddenly announce that we're not flying anymore, we're flying less. But does it seem a little bit hypocritical that, you know, younger generations who haven't seen the world yet, and, and obviously there's huge value in understanding the rest of the world, how are they supposed to experience that if we're telling them all, oh, don't fly anymore? Yeah, it definitely is hypocritical of the likes of me and you saying that. Um, and so if, if anyone was still to fly, I would want young people to fly. I would like the fact that us who have flied before would stop to enable those to be able to explore the world and fly more. And that maybe we're only stopping for 10 years, you know, maybe a new technology will have come along that will make international travel easier for us. But like, I have a big moral issue this year. I have, I'm doing uh, in about a, less than about four days, five days time, I'm off to America for two months to tour a theater show around America. So around America it's easy, it's gonna all be done by, you know, by car and train. Mm-hmm. But that trip across uh, the state the, to, to America, I'm gonna to have to fly for my two month trip. Um, and so I think if we all decide to, that there are reasons that maybe every two years we'll take a, like a long distance flight, like the carbon, it's very clear. You know, you could take one flight to LA or you could take six flights back and forth to the south of Spain or to Germany. So if we just became more aware and set ourselves carbon quotas, I think that'd be the way to do it. Yeah, you should listen back to our first episode where we interviewed Ivan Yates about his journey across the sea to America by boat and how much fun he had, actually. It doesn't sound too bad. But I have to say, in 2016, you kind of... You, you stepped aside from this career as a writer and a documentary maker and you ran for general election in the Longford Westmeath area for the Green Party. A big, uh, big change in career focus. What inspired you to, to dip your toes briefly into politics? Mm, again, I had been involved with a group in West Clare, um, Moy Hill, a sort of a, a regenerative farm that has now spawned into Home Tree, which is a, a forest and land regeneration charity. But they, one of the people there, Fer- Fergal Smith from Moy Hill, said he was going to run in the election. And I knew it was going to be so painful for him. I knew the last thing he wanted to do was that. And I thought, OK, maybe I'll help him with writing copy or writing social media things. And then it was January 20, yeah, as you said, 2016. I thought, no, it was like every, I know the Green, I knew the Green Party wanted, wanted people to run in every county and there was no one running in Longford, Westmead. So I thought, look, I owe this. I'm probably going to load do it. It's going to be load to do it. It's going to be so hard to knock on doors. But I just felt the responsibility that, that that was the one time that, you know, news organizations allow people get on the airwaves to talk about issues. And climate was such a key issue. Um, so I decided I'd do it. And uh, it, w- it was really stressful. I did not enjoy it. But I did OK in the end. I think I was in the running until the eighth count in the election. Um, and I probably had I you know, stuck with it, I probably could have built up over the years. But I just felt I probably wasn't diplomatic enough to be in politics. And it was like sapping. It gave me a huge more respect for those who are in politics. Yeah, I, I noticed you actually you got above the two percent mark, which which would obviously help the Green Party retain their their funding, which was, I think, an important part of why they wanted everyone to to run in every county. But, you know, you, if you'd stayed in it, you potentially could have been a minister right now. What's your impression of, of how the current government is handling environmental issues compared to when you stood for election in 2016? Mm. What's I mean, 
you know, like this is such a vast issue. One does see so many new initiatives coming in and just like whatever, two weeks ago now with this new massive deep retrofit one, which we know is we're going to have to do. We are going to have to somehow make every house in this country be warm and not be boiling and not be, you know, burning fossil fuels. So that's a big step. Um, it's really hard with the whole idea of whether one should allow, you know, um, a, a natural gas still burning. What are we going to do until the other um, technologies come on board? Like they are vast issues and you're going to have so many different policies and agendas with, with Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Green Party. So that I am just so glad I'm not in that mix at the moment. It does seem so complicated and so fraught and what is clear and what Greta Thunberg keeps on saying people haven't woken up to it yet people are still going on businesses as usual yeah um, we we always hear politicians saying we need to bring people with us in in creating this more sustainable Ireland and transitioning to a low carbon society so as as someone who spent a lot of time in rural Ireland where I think the challenges of making this transition are, are much different to the challenges in our urban centers how do you think we should bring people with us in this as you say, like in some way, the, the rural area is a challenge and in some way it is a great opportunity. Because the one thing I realised, like on my bit of land, you know, I don't do, I, I, I'm a writer at my desk and then about two days, two hours every day in the garden. And yet I produce this vast bounty of food, far too much fruit, far too much vegetable, even some grain that I need. So if more of, and there's, you know, more and more unused land in Ireland now. Uh, particularly west of the Shannon, but even around me, so much of it is just going to gorse and, and brambles. Um, and if we were to start producing more food and even using, bringing, basically knitting our communities together by having these community spaces where not only were we producing food, but we were also looking after the elderly in these community spaces ourselves rather than, rather than you know, in, but rather than putting all the money into sort of... Um, foreign companies who are, who are sort of now looking after our elderly and sort of institutions. Um, and in the same ways, if we were looking after, if we had, if we had proper kindergarten, if we had proper schools in this area. So I think whereas cities can be hamstrung with space and opportunities, we have the space to grow and, and then to create absolute tight knit community spaces that will really bring us together. And then the idea of us sharing, um, sharing, cars, sharing transport and sharing heating and living closer together and sharing amenities will make more sense. But the problem, as you say, with rural Ireland is it's so scattered at the moment that the only way it does seem we can live is in the, these individual houses with individual heating systems, individual transport modalities. And um, so it requires a system change. It requires us community to realise, us in the country to realise we can live as tight-knit as people in a city apartment block can just in a different way. Yeah, well, I think it's a great idea to, to, to focus on food. Everybody likes food and talking about food. My thanks to Monk Homregan for giving me some insight into his very green life. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. My thanks to Alex Rousseau and Sean Reedy for producing today's show. And of course, thank you all for listening. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the series on podcast for free at Newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. Next week, we say goodbye to our disposable society as we talk about the new circular economy. But until then, stay curious.